I see it as us, the people who create documentaries and docuseries, we're, we're the new long-form deep-dive journalists. And that's, that's the gap that we're filling, and people are craving straight news. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Sean Reck, a Cleveland native and Emmy Award-winning producer and director who has created over 200 episodes of television programs that are currently licensed around the world and several films that have appeared on Showtime, on Stars, and on Netflix. His first film, A Murder in the Park, was named one of Time Magazine's 15 most fascinating crime stories ever told. And in addition to the hundreds of hours of television programs and documentaries he has directed and produced through Transition Studios, where he serves as CEO and co-founder, he is also the founder of two boutique streaming services, AGTV and True Blue, where he is focused on offering low-cost streaming services featuring factual programming and helping to grow Cleveland's permanent media industry. I really enjoyed working through Sean's perspective on the importance of factual programming and positively affecting history through truth-telling and documentary productions. Please enjoy my conversation with Sean Reck. So at this intersection of, you know, a Venn diagram uh, between film, factual programming, and, and entrepreneurship, you have carved this uh, professional space for yourself to build and, and tell the, the kind of stories that, that impassion you. And I, I'd love to start, you know, hearing about your draw to each of those areas. You know, where did your interest in each of them respectively come from? And, and how has your experience shaped your path to work? at their intersection, both as a, as a director, as a producer, but also as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think my experience as an entrepreneur is the reason that uh, we took a, a little bit different path than most companies trying to make it in entertainment. There's a, a dynamic, especially out in Hollywood, where filmmakers are very much at the whim of, of whoever's buying their product or whoever they're partnering with in the product. They limit how much you can make. Uh, they they take advantage of people's enthusiasm and desire to get things seen or stories out, and they they quite frankly rip them off. And the fact that I came from a uh, an entrepreneurial background and kind of been a hustler my whole life has given me the skill set to keep those hands out of our pie. And the goal since I've started uh, since I started transition has been to get is as many uh, cups out of our revenue waterfall as possible. You know, you, there are deals out there, film deals where there are 40 entities being paid and taking cuts and you're left with almost nothing. So now we're trying to do what the music business has done in a way, which is make this a relationship between the creator of the content and the consumer of the content through one conduit. And that conduit can be iTunes, it can be, um, uh, streaming service. It can it can be uh, you know a, a deal a direct deal with a, a network or something like that. But we've we've been very fortunate in that uh, you know we're willing to say no. Hmm. One of the biggest deals ever made for a, for a docu series, which is what we specialize in, uh, was the Jinx. 
it's not disclosed how much it was, but everybody knows it's, it's the largest purchase ever in DocuSeries. And the reason was that the, the, the person who financed it, Andrew Jarecki, the director, the director, was the founder of MoviePhone, and he didn't have to take their money. And he could say no. And he said no a lot. And uh, that's, that's how he ended up getting what he wanted. And a lot of artists and creators and journalists are not empowered to do that. So we just make sure that, first of all, that we don't need their money. We find local people to finance our projects for us, and we reinvest our profits into our projects. And the other thing we do is um, create our own uh, means of distribution so that if nobody's willing to offer enough, well, we'll buy it off us. And that's what we're doing by, you know, with starting these streaming services like uh, True Blue, which will which will launch this Thanksgiving. Mm. And maybe just taking a step back, you know, if you could unpack a little bit your your journey as an entrepreneur, you know, where where did that interest come from? How did it start, and how how has it developed over time? It started when I was a kid. I I was uh, six feet tall when I was twelve or thirteen years old. My mother's uh, straight from Germany, and you know. <laughs> kind of got a hard edge to her, and she said, "You have a man's body. Go out and earn. Go out and earn your own money," which I did. So I uh, uh, went out and shoveled driveways and mowed lawns. And my father had kind of a hustler mentality. He said, "Boy, if you had better equipment, you could probably do more driveways and more lawns. Uh, you save up half the money. I'll lend you the other half, and and you can get more efficient." That happened, and I saw worth. You know, I could grow a business just as a kid going to school. And uh, so I, I was pretty entrepreneurial at a, at a very young age. And uh, I enjoyed the independence that came with having some money in my pocket that my friends didn't have. And so I said, hey, let's go to the movies. And the other four guys said, I don't have any money. I'd say, well, let's, I'll pay. Let's go. Let's have fun. So it was, it was, it was great as a kid to, you know, I, I just I enjoy working. And uh, I, I never apologize for trying to make money. My first business, if, if you, I'm not considering mowing lawns and doing driveways <laughs> a, bus, a business. So my, my first business was actually an engraving business uh, that I started while still in high school. Uh, those are usually mom and pop shops that, you know, do their local high school and a few little businesses. They'll do nameplates or they'll do awards. But I wanted to scale it up and do more of a national company. So we invested in some equipment and also took advantage of the fact that the equipment prices came down right when we were getting into it and equipped ourselves to handle national accounts. We used to make all the signs inside Bally's Health Clubs. We did every table tent at Long John Silver's, you know, when you were waiting for your order and you had a number six on your table for the whole country. We did every name badge for every Denny's in the country thousands and thousands of apartment signs and directory strips for apartments. And that business turned into a national company. And, you know, these little tiny businesses uh, where people basically started a job, you know, I, I started something that actually could employ people and, and ran it for about 20 years and sold it. Uh, then I got into the software business, three different types of software. One, I got started and sold. Uh, the second one, was pretty successful. I sold it, but I, was, I wasn't paid. They stiffed me and stuck me with a heck of a tax bill because I wasn't careful in how I structured it. The third thing I did was uh, software-wise was educational software. 
And uh, it was a fantastic product, but uh, the company completely flopped because I wasn't cognizant of the corruption involved with education. And everybody I was trying to sell to ended up like down the line, resigning in disgrace or going to prison Oh wow! because of, uh, of their business practices and how everybody had to uh, kick back money. And I just, I didn't know that game. So I, I blame that, but I also obviously made a lot of mistakes myself. So that was a colossal loser. And I, I learned more from that. You know, that, that was sort of my college education. I did a couple of years at Cleveland State studying economics, but I never earned my degree because my business took off and I was young and arrogant and thought, well, if I make as much as my professors, I don't have to go to college. So after that failure, I, it, it kind of, people who've been through a failed business understand it. It'll, it'll fry your brain. And it, I, I destroyed many relationships too, because I thought, I was going to be the hero and, you know, I had family invest, neighbors, friends, and uh, they all lost on that thing, you know, still repaying them to this day and uh, sort of went into a deep depression and thought, well, I'm, I, maybe I'm not cut out to be an entrepreneur. Maybe, you know, actually part of me wanted to go out and do driveways and, and uh, mow lawns again just to, <laughs> to make sure it still worked. So I, I, I became an editor of a trade magazine for the uh, multifamily housing industry. And I did that for several years and I got the bug again. Actually, my boss sensed, you know, he's, he knew me when I was an entrepreneur, when I was running companies, he knew I wanted to get back into something and he actually helped me financially. And he's my partner now. His name is Ralph McGreevy. So he helped uh, fund the, the start of, of transition. I, I just knew that if I was going to fail again, I was going to fail doing something I absolutely loved, and I've always wanted to make movies. So I thought that television was the path to movies. Now it's, it's become very murky because there's not, you know, television's elevated its game. Movies are kind of crashing. So I'm, I'm glad I started in TV, but we, we do both here at Transition. So that kind of led, led up to where we're at now. So a, a lot of questions from <laughs> from that, and a, as we make our way to to film and uh, and documentaries and and factual programming, how did you then go about breaking into this this world of film where you know that was not where your experience and expertise had been at that point in time? How, how did you break in? So the the keys to breaking in were not listening to anybody when they told <laughs> me we couldn't do it. Um, a lot of people said you couldn't do it. If you, we wanted to create a show called Warrant Unit, which later became Crime Stoppers Case Files. Ralph, my partner, lived next door to the head of Crime Stoppers and a sergeant named David Rutt, who ran Crime Stoppers for Northeastern Ohio. Dave, Ralph, and I started this show. So we had access. So we had access to the detectives, which is not always easy to get. But everybody said, no, you're not going to be able to get on TV. They're going to charge you. You're going to have to, you know, pay them 2,500 bucks to air a half hour show. And uh, you're not going to make any money. They were, they were kind of right about that part. I said, you'll never get it on TV. It's basically what people told us. So I went out and found a young man to be my intern named Brandon Kimber. He now owns the company with us. And he was the first of... Uh, of the filmmakers we hired and he was extremely good and we made television i mean we made quality that looked like what you saw on tv 
he was able to do that with a skill set. So basically, I delegated the creative part to Brandon. I consider myself more of a journalist and storyteller, so I made sure that I found the right stories. Then the entrepreneurial side kicked in, and uh, I had to kind of create a little bit of competition for these shows, for these stations to want the show. And we ended up getting in on uh, WOIO Channel 19, which is a CBS affiliate, and it ran there for a couple of years. And then we got it on Channel 5, where it ran for a few more years in Cleveland. Uh, that show was really successful, in, uh, and we didn't have to pay to air it. They actually, uh, it was what they call a barter deal, which meant that they got half the ad spots and we got to sell half the ad spots, which was uh, tricky and added another element to the business, but at least we weren't paying for airtime and we could go out and sell ads on our program to help finance it. Uh, the show had some success and uh, we, Miami Crime Stoppers heard about it. Uh, the head of Miami Crime Stoppers, a gentleman named Chief Richard Maston, called us and said, hey, I want to do it down here. And so we did, and uh, same thing. I ended up getting it on CBS down in Miami. That show ran for many years. You could still see it, you know, on Tubi and true crime television and, and places like that. We did it in Los Angeles and got it on CBS in Los Angeles. And in Chicago, we got it on Fox. And probably the biggest feather in our cap is that, uh, you know, in L.A., the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, you know, which is surrounded by thousands of production companies, hmm. came to Cleveland, Ohio to make their show. And I just thought that was pretty cool. And I think uh, that was sort of a, a notch in our belt that, that our, our quality was, was good enough that, uh, that we could hang with anybody. And all the while, while you're building out, you know, transition studios, you're, you're doing it in Cleveland. We're doing it in Cleveland and we're committed to Cleveland. And now we, you know, we've got 30 filmmakers, 28 of them in Cleveland. And we have a, a, an office in Huntsville, Alabama and Destin, Florida also, um, where we do some stuff, but, uh, almost all the post productions done here. Uh, we have a, a 12,500 square foot facility here in Playhouse Square in the Idea Center. We're two floors below the film school where, you know, the Cleveland State Film School who runs a steady stream of interns through our business and allows us to cherry pick uh, the best of their talent. And, but yes, we're very, very committed to Cleveland. I've, I've lived in Cleveland since I was three years old and uh, I'm trying to stop people. And I think we've been successful in this. A lot of people have this idea that you need to, that you need to head to Los Angeles or to Atlanta or to New York to get into movies and TV. And you really don't. You can do it right here from Cleveland. Until recently, you could fly to LA for meetings for, for 100 bucks. So you can go have your meetings out there. They don't have to know where you live. But you can, you can create the content right here in, in Cleveland. And that's what, that's what we do. And, uh, you know, there, there are benefits to that. To live out in LA, an editor, you know, is going to pay three or $4,000 rent. Where in Cleveland, they, they can have a $1,200 house payment. That enables us to pay them a good living, but uh, you know, not have to pay crazy gig rates that we'd pay if we were if we were out west when we create this, these programs. How have you seen the Cleveland's you know permanent media industry evolve over the time as you've started and built and grown Transition Studios? There's a pretty 
established significant permanent media industry here, but most of them aren't doing public stuff. Uh, Most of them are doing commercial work. You know, there's like a very large studio in the Cleveland Clinic, but they're just there. That's an internal constituency. You know, we've obviously got our TV stations, but there are uh, companies in Cleveland that are quite large that just focus on education, focus on commercial work, which we had, we've done some of that in the past and we're still willing to, but not many of them venture into trying to create content for Netflix or, or whoever. Everything, by the way, all, you know, every movie we made pretty much has, has ended up on Netflix. So that's kind of the, the, the gold standard these days for where, where you want your stuff to end up. I don't know if we're, we're making a, a docuseries criticizing them, so I don't know if uh, they'll ever air anything of ours again, but, uh, that, you know, we've got to tell the truth. So mm, That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I can get into it if you want. It's really Sure, cool. I'd, I'd love to hear about that. We'll go on a detour. Yeah, um, the biggest crime docuseries in history was Making a Murderer. You know, I think it had the highest viewership. They don't really release their numbers, but I, mean, I think uh, worldwide, over 100 million people watched Making a Murderer. I watched it. It was fascinating. Loved it. And then I did a little, little bit of research and found out that I was completely tricked. They didn't tell the whole story at all. They uh, created facts. They edited testimony. Um, the filmmakers, when they made that, when they made that, that documentary, and it's really important in this business. We consider ourselves journalists. They use narrative filmmaking techniques and kind of Franken edited that series. And now that it's coming out that it was really dishonest, it could, it's going to lower the stock of all of us who make these types of programs. So it's very important that we, so we, we created a, what kind of like the third season of Making a Murderer, but it sets the record straight. It's called Convicting a Murderer. It may be renamed before we release it. It's, it's going to be done actually uh, next Friday. We've been working on it for about five years and spent millions of dollars on it. But it's uh, basically, it should, it should be a pretty big deal because it's going gonna, it's gonna to show a lot of people how they were tricked hmm. by some pretty dishonest filmmaking. Well, I, I think that's, that's maybe a, a great segue, actually, to talk about you know, the mantra that, that I know you have at Transition, which is you know, positively affecting history. And I think it's, it's really interesting and important to to get your perspective on this, because I think that's exactly, you know, right. When we deal with the past and deciding, you know, which version of history we want to recognize or which stories from it we want to tell, effectively, we're, we're, we're going through what we want to remember and what we want to forget. And it's why I think it can become so politically charged and why historians actually have great influence, given our multiplicity of views about the past and its significance for the present as a society. And I think this framing of positively affecting history is important. I'd love for you to unpack what you mean by that uh, and how you think about, you know, stewardship. You know, how is it that you tell the stories that you're telling and your, your right. commitment to, to factual programming? Well, we do a lot of media criticism. We've criticized the, the media in probably every movie we've, we've made because the, there's, there's lazy journalism out there, there's unethical journalism, there are people who are too cozy with one side of the story. So setting the record straight is very important to us. I think I believe we're the only filmmakers who have had a hand in 
three wrongfully convicted or oversentenced prisoners walking out. It's, it's, it's really fun to walk out of prison with somebody and film it. And um, because of the work of the people you're filming or because of your work. So that's, that's another kind of feather in our cap. But so that we think that's positively affecting history. But it, 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 here's the thing. When I am about to close my eyes for the last time and, and, and meet my creator, I don't want to look back and say, yeah, that company was a success and we filmed pretty ladies whipping wine on each other, you know, and having cat fights. God bless basketball wives and shows like that. You know, everybody has to make a living, but I, I just wanted to do something that's a little more consequential. But the trick is to do it in a way that you can make money. So that's, that's what I think we're achieving now is kind of an intersection between socially important and sticking to genres in which there's always an interest. You know, crime isn't what they call an evergreen genre. It never goes dark. Uh, people always have a, a craving for crime programming. So that's kind of what, that's a lot of what we do is crime. And there, there's always going to be crime, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, different types. Now, uh, you know, my partner in uh, True Blue, our new streaming service, my partner is Chris Hansen. So now we do all the predator investigations. That's called Takedown with Chris Hansen now. So we, we go to Michigan and Florida and California and catch bad guys who are trying to meet children. We uh, are exposing scammers. Our, our footage is frequently requested by both sides in legal cases to prove their point. And we even have a, a, some religious programming that Brandon is, is really passionate about. Our biggest movie ever it was called American Gospel, Christ Alone. That, and that movie criticized faith healers and tricksters and hucksters and pointed out the, the, you know, that if they call themselves Christian, that they're, they're in error. And uh, even that is kind of correcting the record, at least for Christians. Um, so pretty much everything we've done has been like, hey, take a look at this. You're, you're, you're doing it wrong. And here's why. Hmm. So as you kind of you know, worked through the, the maturity of, of Transition Studios over time, at what point you know, do you start thinking about True Blue? Right? Like what, what are the questions that you're asking? What, what are you trying to validate? What vision did you have for the future that kind of warrants the creation of a different organization relative to the work you're, you're already doing and the stories you're telling through Transition? So True Blue came about because I, I've got to back up a little bit. I told you that American Gospel Christ Alone was our, was our biggest film. It created so much thirst for that type of content that we ended up creating a boutique streaming service called AGTV. Uh, if you wanted to see the website, it's watchagtv.com. And that service is a success. I mean, we're not even two years into it, and it is successful streaming service as a boutique streamer. And I learned the streaming business when we, when we started that company. And it's just focused on that sort of content. While I was doing that, during the, you know, the, the woke movement, Hollywood was responding to pressure by canceling very popular programs. They canceled Cops, they canceled Live PD, Crime Watch Daily, went off the air. Uh, they, they didn't want to be associated with police. And, mm. you know, people, people want that programming. Now Cops has been resurrected by Fox. 
Reels just resurrected uh, Live PD, which we were going to do, but they beat us to it. So God bless them. So it's basically, I said, you know, there's going to be a, a thirst for true crime programming. They're out canceling it, despite it being such a big part of the revenue stream. So they're shooting themselves in the foot to, to, to look like they're on the right side of history. And the demand is out there for it. So we're going to provide it and we're going to create original content and we're going to license content. So True Blue uses Transition as a vendor, of course, but we, we're a buyer. We buy other people's content. We're licensing hundreds of films from Gravitas, also here in Cleveland. They moved here uh, back from Hollywood to Cleveland, and they control 3,000 films. So we're, we're a buyer, and basically what it is is a little Netflix that will launch on Thanksgiving Day that's just dedicated to uh, factual programming, social issues, and true crime. And, and some civil rights. So that, that's the vision. The vision, I'd love to say, you know, I had a dream and, you know, this needs to happen, but I'm, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you I saw a hole in the market and decided to fill it. Hmm. Maybe you can share a little bit of context on what the market looks like, right? What, what is the, the state of documentaries today, a, a factual programming? Maybe how, how has it evolved? How, is, how has it, you know, handled the transition from the old media vehicles to, to streaming, just, you know, where, where we are with all of that and, and where, what was the, the actual gap? No one will debate that factual programming is bigger now than it ever was. No one's going to debate that. What they will debate is why. My theory why is that organizations that used to deliver straight news all, for whatever reason, decided to pick a side. MSNBC went far left, CNN went slightly left, Fox went far right. There's some other kookier ones that are even farther right. And it seems like no one besides maybe BBC and PBS are delivering straight news. So I see it as us, people who create documentaries and docu-series, we're, we're the new long-form deep-dive journalists. And that's, that's the gap that we're filling, and people are craving straight news, or you know, if you do have a bias that, that it's implied, and you're, and you're pretty transparent about what your bias is. You know, in the, like, we, we, do, we do have a bias when we're trying to get someone out of prison. For instance, you know, we, it's pretty clear that we're trying to tell the story so that something changes. But you just have to be honest about that. I think that the, the, the hole I saw was the hole in news. Everything is just far left, far right, and you know somehow that's what's paying off for them. But the market has hurt journalism. So we're filling the gap. Is there, or I guess how do you think about competition and differentiation you know when i just as a as a consumer of of different media you know there's this it's it's overwhelming honestly this proliferation of different streaming services we've gone through the bundling unbundling rebundling of <laughs> all these different streaming services how do you think about competition in the space and and differentiating you know true blue as a as a service well i believe that i mean our con- true blue's content is going to be licensed to other networks as well and, and studies show, research shows that that does not cannibalize your own audience for some reason. It's amazing. You can have it on a different network and, it, and still not lose subscribers on your own, on your own network or, or viewership. 
what's going to differentiate True Blue is uh, integrity, and people I think can spot when you're telling a story straight and not not putting a slant on it, and uh, the quality of the programming and the quality of the stories. You know, uh, our first film, A Murder in the Park. When I watch it now, I I cringe at some of our cinematography and and the way we did things. But uh, you know, the story is so great that it still made Time Magazine's list of the 15 most fascinating true crime stories ever told. It's the story. So we find really good stories, really interesting stories. I've got a pretty good nose for what people want to hear about and see. Uh, so it's the quality of the stories that are that are going to bring people to True Blue. And, and there's a viral name. You know, Chris, Chris Hansen's previous investigations are one of the most downloaded things and viewed things ever. Uh, I mean, you can, we can, I think we tallied half a billion YouTube views of various, you know, predator investigations from the past. So, you know, now that franchise is restarted as Takedown with Chris Hansen, people are going to be able to see fresh episodes of that on True Blue. We have a, a civil rights show that's unlike anything anybody's ever done called The People in the Pictures. We were filming in Alabama last week. Uh, in which we take an iconic, well, some iconic, some never seen photos of something involving civil rights where there's a, an oppressor and a victim. And we find those people and we find out if they've changed and if they changed, how did they change and why did they change? Hmm. And we do a super deep dive into a photo. We find the people in it. I mean, picture Ruby, the young, the young girl who was walked in by marshals, uh, during uh, desegregation, all these, uh, there were a bunch of uh, white high school girls just screaming at her with scowls on their face. How many of them have mixed grandchildren now? And have they changed? How do they feel about their behavior back then? You know, this is, this is the type of thing we're exploring. I think that's really compelling television. I've, and uh, I, that's, I don't think I've seen anything like that on TV before. So that's the sort of thing that I think will draw people to true blue. Yeah, no, I think that is, that is quite powerful. What, what do you find are the biggest misconceptions people have about documentary filmmaking and, you know, what perhaps do you wish people knew or, or understood about the, about the space? People need to understand that, that you need to check documentarians work. You can't totally trust them right now because we don't have established ethical standards in this space like journalism does or like attorneys do. We need to establish a voluntary set of standards. You know, we need to tell people who paid us to make it. We need to tell people if we have a point of view up front, there needs to be uh, some disclosure and we're pushing for that with one of our projects. That's what, that's how it ends. We ask for, for the filmmaking community to establish these standards. So I, I would tell people to check the work you just watched. It's, it's pretty easy these days. Uh, there's usually a, a, Reddit, a Reddit thread uh, <laughs> on, on, pretty, on everything that comes out, and you can, uh, you can see both points of views and check for yourself if you're passionate about the subject. Across transition, the, the kind of founding here of, of True Blue and you know, the, the success you've had with AGTV, what, what, is, what has surprised you the most on, on this leg of your journey? <laughs> Well, the biggest surprise is the success of the of the Christian films. Um, Brandon uh, Kimber, our creative director and the, the president of AGTV now, 
who was our first intern. We hired for $150 a week stipend, you know, 14 years ago. He didn't want to do any more murder. So we did all these you know, hundreds of episodes of Crime Stoppers, and we had to deal with, you know, families who were just torn apart by the, the, the death of their sons. And we were softies, and it affected us profoundly. We, we really, really, it got to us, and we, we didn't want to do it anymore because we felt so bad for these families, and we kind of empathized and suffered with them. So he said, and he's a, he's a devout Christian, he said, I, I just don't want to do this anymore, no more murder. And I, I promised him we would do a movie, I think, on adoption, which I, because I was adopted, and that we never, that never materialized. And I said, we're going to do another movie. And he said, what's it called? And I said, oh boy. I said, it's uh, a murder in the park. And uh, he said, no, I'm not doing it. I said, Brandon, if you do this, if you edit this film and shoot it with me and the team, I will let you make any movie you want to make, any movie you want. And he said, fine. I didn't know he was like loaded and ready to go. He said, I'm making a movie about the, uh, about the gospel and about false preachers and, and uh, people who are, who are in rebellion, you know, who call themselves Christians who aren't. I said, fine. And I turned around, went to my office, said, well, that's going to be expensive and no one's going to watch that. Uh, I was just, that's one of the one time in which my instincts were totally dead wrong. I, I told him, I said, Brandon, people want high stakes, you know, crime, that's high stakes. And he rolled his eyes and walked away. And then uh, we released, we just self-released American Gospel. And it's this massive, massive success. I mean, just staggering success. And he came to me and, and, and took a shot at me. And he said, Sean, what's higher stakes than eternal salvation? And I, real, I, I realized um, he kind of had me there. And that's that, you know, the higher the stakes, the higher the viewership. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's serious stuff for a lot of people. And I, I was surprised by the success of that film. And then the fact that we had a successful sequel, have a third one coming and could create a streaming service with 800 hours of content and tens of thousands of subscribers uh, from that film. That was the biggest surprise in this journey. And I was totally wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. As you, you know, think about the, the future and what's coming next, what, what has you, you know, most excited over the next year and, and change? And, you know, maybe at, at that point, we can tie it back to Cleveland as well. And, and what has you excited about, you know, the, the development of, of Cleveland's film scene? What has me excited is that people are starting to believe me when I say you don't have to move, mm. that's what, that's what excites me. We're kind of living proof that you can stay here. You don't have to leave. You can make great stuff. Every time we hit, you know, a single or a home run, we're, 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 we're showing future creators from Cleveland that they don't have to move to LA. There are a lot of Clevelanders out in Los Angeles, believe me. Some of the biggest shows, ever were, you know, run by, run by Clevelanders and created by Clevelanders and written by Clevelanders. Why, why are we, why are we developing this talent and losing it? That's probably what I'm most excited about. It's, it's starting to work. People always ask me, oh, do you, you know, you, do you must do a bunch of stuff with the film commission. And it's like, no, that's, that's completely different. Their, their mission is, is more akin to like the sports commission or the convention of Vis visitors bureau. You know, they're trying to bring money in. 
and bring outside productions in, but those people come in, film, and leave, and hopefully use some of our workforce. This is this is completely completely different, you know, and that and that we're creating permanent jobs. I want everybody here to eventually start their own company, or you know, I tell everybody who comes here, even as an intern, one day if everything works out, we want you to direct a film, if that's your goal. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what excites me now is seeing how the future looks here in Cleveland. No, that that is that is quite exciting. I think the the witnessing of the the narrative changing that's that is progress. I think so. So we'll we'll close it out here, uh, keeping it with Cleveland in, in focus. Um, the the closing question that we have for everyone on the show is not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not know about Cleveland. You know, a hidden gem, if you will. My hidden gems. I'm a, I'm a fat guy. You're not doing video, but people would see I'm a fat guy. My, <laughs> my hidden gems involve how good our food scene is. Mm. But the other thing I usually have to educate people, that I have to bring them up to speed on, is, is our arts infrastructure. The robber barons, uh, you know, a century ago, really, really funded some incredible stuff. I think uh, something that some more people should know about are things like uh, the Cleveland Orchestra, and some of the museums we have near Case Western Reserve and that whole area. I think that uh, (laughs) the problem with it, I I was going to bring up food, but like these places are dropping like flies. It's killing me. I I, I used to love taking people to uh, University Inn, Sokolowski's, because they could have a a meal that was exactly like their grandmother made in the 60s or 70s, but that they they chose to close. But uh, I don't want to end on a negative note. but I think that I think our, our arts infrastructure is something that a lot of people don't understand or, or know about. And I think that our philanthropic infrastructure is amazing. The Cleveland Foundation is incredible and it's huge. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people aren't aware of, of, of the work they do. So I think that uh, those are probably the maybe not so hidden gems, but things that aren't talked about enough. Yeah, no, I think those are those are awesome. Well, Sean, I, I really appreciate you know you coming on and you know, sharing your own story in addition to many others. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If people want to sign up and uh, possibly uh, check out the new service uh, when it releases Thanksgiving, uh, just go to watchtrublu.com. That's where they can uh, catch up on what we're doing. Wonderful. And if, if, if folks had anything they wanted to follow up with you about, whether that be True Blue or, or Transition or you know, AGTV or any of the work that you're doing, what is the, the best way for them to do so? Oh, just email me. It's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at transitionstudios.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions anybody has. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Sean. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. 
At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.